Hey everybody, we are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event, and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 83. This week, the top 10 games that bumped their predecessor. We'll also talk solo gaming with Anthony. We'll have an interview with Greg Webster from Mind Games Mensa USA. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. Welcome to the table, everybody. We're so glad to have you join us here again this week. We have an outstanding episode for you. We got some solo gaming. We have an interview with American Mensa Mind Games Chief Judge Greg Webster, which is going to be awesome. It turns out that super, 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 super smart people love to play games and have fun too. So, I don't know, Daniel, what is that thing? By if A equals B, then C, B equals C, and then therefore A equals C? A, a tra- is greater than B, B right. is greater than C. The transitive, yeah. Transitive property, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are you trying to say we're smart? Because I don't know if we're proving that right now. <laughs> no, no, it's totally, totally. All right, yeah, that apparently they'd beat us <laughs> by the transitive property. Therefore, everybody listening to this podcast is super, super smart. So Harder than us, <laughs> that too. <laughs> but nonetheless, we're here with you at the table, and we have an outstanding episode. Our feature review this week is going to be the top ten games that bumped out their predecessors. So with that said, we want to tell you about our weekly contest, and we've talked about this before. It is our Cool Stuff Inc. contest. So hopefully you've already listened back to episode 81, which had our survey, which gave you an opportunity to get a chance to win our $50 raffle and then a chance to win the $500 raffle with the Dice Tower Network. And then on episode 82, you had a second chance by going on to Twitter 
and posting what Anthony had posted in our episode guide on our website, BoardGamersAnonymous.com. But that's not it. On this episode 83, you're going to get a third opportunity to enter again. Now, this time it's going to be through Facebook. So be sure to check out BoardGamersAnonymous.com episode 83 and you'll see this week's special way to enter the contest. So now at this point, you'll have three entries into the contest for nothing. And they will be one chosen, as I said, and then one overall chosen from all the networks. So good luck with that, and we hope that you win. Now with that said, on to the news. Take it away, Drew. Shout it from the tabletops. (laughs) Sir, you're going to need to get down from there. Hey, last week, I told you about court case that was settled to allow the D&D movie to go forward. I just wanted to add one quick follow-up because I read a really good blog post by Critical Hits discussing that, uh, the D&D movie, what it's going to be like. It made a really good point about how hard it's going to be to make a good Dungeons & Dragons movie because uh, of all the history behind it, of the great literature that D&D was built on, and the worlds that D&D has created over the decades, that there's no way one movie is going to be able to capture all of that. It could be an awesome movie by Hollywood standards, but it's going to be really hard to live up to its place in gaming history. Very thoughtful, very good uh, article by Critical Hits. I'm going to post that address. Do you think any movie could do justice to Dungeons & Dragons, to the whole world that it's created? Or would you need like a miniseries, like a Game of Thrones type miniseries? I don't know. It's an interesting question because when I think of Dungeons and Dragons, I don't think of a specific world so much as the rule set, right? So it's almost like asking, could any movie really capture physics, right? <laughs> the, the rules that govern the universe? And there are, you know, certain worlds within D&D which could be explored, I think, fairly well, right? You could do an Eberron movie. You could do a Forgotten Realms movie. But that would be more about the world it was in than D&D as D&D, right? Because D&D sub- exists over all of these worlds. I don't know that it could, and I think that if you tried to make a movie at the level that caught what is, to me, the core of D&D you'd end up bogged down in bizarre metaphysical abstractions that would <laughs> entertain nobody but me. So, <laughs> well, well, I don't know about that. I mean, we had Tom Hanks's theatrical release of Mazes and Monsters. <laughs> You're fixated on that, Chris. It's Chris a great says. movie. <laughs> <laughs> if you play D&D, you'll go crazy and try to kill yourself, and that's pretty much all everyone's experience right 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 i hope this isn't like an update of that <laughs> tom hanks well, playing an older version as daniel was saying he wanted a movie about a, a you know a set of rules that drives you to a forgotten realm and uh tries to kill you so it, it works you know <laughs> well they made a good point that it's dnd is very literary it's it's built on some great sci-fi fantasy uh, fiction so um, yeah, let's just have a good sci-fi fantasy film. I mean, Lord of the Rings did it. If Lord of the Rings could be made into three movies relatively well, Drew, hold back, Drew, hold back, Drew, then <laughs> I think anybody can do it. No, I'm not going to comment on that. I'm, wait- I know. I'm just waiting for a chance to talk about The Hobbit Okay, movies, but <laughs> not here. We'll That's our spinoff that podcast. <laughs> okay, I'll give you Hobbit's the Hobbit's Anonymous. <laughs> I'll give you the address for that article, but another address I'm going to toss in is for a study created by a Cornell computer scientist. He um, analyzed messages sent between players of diplomacy, 
looking for clues of future betrayal. You know, right? You know, he compares what they said versus what they ended up doing. He created an algorithm which predicted betrayal 57% of the time, which is much greater than expected and certainly much better than the players could do. (laughs) My question is, how much would you guys pay for an app that could tell you if you're going to be knifed in the back? 57% of the time. That doesn't sound like better than a coin flip, so I feel like I just use the penny (laughs) and flip it and be like, all right. I think it's enough to give you just enough of an edge to get the jump on the guy who's going to do you dirty. I don't know, man. It's 15% better than a coin flip, so maybe... Yeah, I don't know. We can't figure it out on our own. We need <laughs> we need app. We need these things. Hey, an interesting bit of post-Gen Con news that I found on ICV2. They were talking about their discussion with Plaid Hat, and we know that just before Gen Con, F2Z, the parent company of Z-Man, swooped in and, and bought up Plaid Hat. It's a good company that makes some great products. So one of the interesting things that ICV2 found out was that Plaid Hat's distribution deal is not exclusive with F2Z. So they're still independently making deals for distribution. They have the freedom for that, but they're still going to benefit from you know, all of the resources that F2C has. Specifically, they were saying dead of winter. There's not going to be a lot of delays, especially with the new um, expansion that they announced. So um, F2C is going to be good for that. There's not going to be any backlog. Dead of winter announced a standalone expansion. Interesting. Saw tail feathers and mice and mystics in that same, it's from the same universe. It's, basically a continuation but it's a whole different game you can mix them but you can buy them separately gives you some flexibility pick and choose another item about gen con for you matt lee's of shut up and sit down did a piece on vice you know bill maher's alt news channel uh, about gen con was that it revealed in in that piece that gen con was named for lake geneva wisconsin where the first one was held by uh, gygax and his partners way back when so I didn't know what, what Gen Con came from. Final bit of news, GameStop, that ubiquitous mall store for video gamers, has quietly been selling board games for two years. They've upped their game by signing a deal to promote Cryptozoic products in their stores. You know, Walking Dead, Dice Game, Spyfall, I think is their latest big one, Adventure Time Card Wars, DC Deck Builders. Is Cryptozoic a good fit with video gamers? Do you think they'll, they'll pull people over to the board game side? I think it's the perfect fit because they have the IPs that gamers really like, especially the DC, you know, deck builder. Who doesn't like DC Comics? You know, Batman, Arkham City, Arkham Knight, all the different Arkhams. That's really the biggest video games out there right now. And to have that alongside the deck builders, it's going to be huge. Attack on Titan is, is there. And, I mean, it's really the perfect company for all these different things. So is this a trend now or just an aberration? you think GameStop's going to reach out to some more companies? I think this is a trend. I think we're going to see board games in more big box locations for the general public. The hobby games are just exploding everywhere. And once GameStop you know, does really well with this, we can see it just kind of branch out to more and more locations. Cool. And business has not been great for GameStop lately, right? I mean, as... As the console market gets more complicated and you have an increasing number of PC gamers who buy yeah. their games in virtual-only copies, this is might be a desperation move, but it's also a potentially very smart one, right? Because it would be a major chain of game stores 
work uh, for board games anyway, we don't really have. Yeah, and I think they've made some other acquisitions. Didn't they buy ThinkGeek? Similar to what we see Barnes & Noble doing, where they're, bring, you know, they're focusing more on toys and games and puzzles than they are on books, uh. which is why they made their name. GameStop has to do the same thing, because the thing that they make their bread and butter on is now mostly digital. Sure. Whereas board games, collectibles, toys, that you can't make that digital, and people are always going to want that stuff. And uh. the nostalgia for it right now is high, and board games are awesome, and we're cool. So, <laughs> And Daniel, to follow up on what you point you'd mentioned, I just read a blog post recently that speculated one of the big reasons for board games making a big push is is the very fact that it's getting away from consoles or or where four people can sit in a room on a split screen and you know play a game all together and now it's going more toward PCs and online where everybody's in their own room by themselves. Yeah, the, there the was... gamers miss that contact with each other. Yeah, I think there was a bit of a mistake by the board by the sorry, video gaming community to sort of let hot seat multiplayer die in a big way. The mm-hmm. idea of sitting on the couch with your buds and playing through a game is really not that easy to do anymore, right? Many games, in fact, offer online-only multiplayer, which is fine, right? There are times when you really do want to play with the anonymous or semi-anonymous hordes. But there's also times where what you'd really want to do to recapture the good old days is to sit with your friends around on a couch. And that's something that the video game industry has made harder and harder to do. And the board game industry makes much easier to do and provides a sort of a great network for doing that in. Thanks, guys. That is our news from the tabletop this week. I will rejoin you guys for final round. All right, everybody. I'm so glad to have the chief judge at Mind Games, Greg Webster, join us for a short interview on everything related to Mensa and especially the Mensa Select, the competition and the great games that come out of it. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. So, Greg, many people are probably not familiar with some of these organizations and these concepts and everything that you do. Why don't you start off telling us a little bit about Mensa and what that means? Well, Mensa, as you may have heard, is, uh, is the high IQ club. It's not the only high IQ club, but it is one of the most well-known. Back in the early 90s, 1990, there were some people that were living in New York the New York area that would go to the New York Toy and Game Fair. And they would. there were a lot of games there, and they decided, wouldn't it be kind of fun if we had sort of a competition with these board games and we would pick which ones were the best, the, the men's select. And so that's how that's how Mind Games began, is uh, just someone said, this would be kind of a fun thing to do. And it was pretty small back then, uh, but it, it's pretty big now. This past year we had about uh, 250 people there and uh, about 60, I think 64 games. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. So I'm assuming that Mind Games, as far as the little kind of offshoot from Mensa, kind of grew from that. Right. It's uh, the, way, the way it works is, uh, you know, American Mensa is the national organization. Sure. Mind Games itself travels from city to city. It's hosted by a local group. Okay. Uh, this, this past year, it was in San Diego. This coming year... Uh, in April, it's going to be in Chicago. Oh, great. And the way it works, manufacturers, they register their games to be played at Mind Games. Okay. And it costs them $200, and they have to submit six copies of the game. One of those copies is set aside for the local group, and then the other five games get played over the weekend. Oh, okay. And, uh, everybody travels in from people local in the area, or they fly in from all across the country and even from other countries. 
and over the course of the weekend, Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday morning, each person will get a list, a randomized list of 30 games that, that they have to play, 30 of the 60 to 65 games that are going to be there. And once they play those 30 games, you vote for the, the top seven that you think are the best. The, the games are rated on uh, in five categories, originality, uh, the gameplay, the play value, aesthetics, and the instructions. Part of what I do is I count the ballots. Five winners are announced in no particular order, and then those five games get to put the Mensa Select seal on their packaging um, forever, as long as they still publish the game. Oh, that's outstanding. As part of America Mensa, when you're looking at these games, you're really looking for... The fun, of course, but also the intellectual value and engagement that that game's giving you. Well, you would think that it's, you know, intellectual engagement is, is part of what games are all about. But sure. Mostly, mostly the gamers are, you know, is this game fun? Is this a game that I would want to play again? Is it, is it interesting? Does it give you interesting, make, uh, interesting choices? Is it, is it fun to play? Do you have good interactions with, with everybody, or is it kind of... Or is it not? Are you not making very interesting decisions? Or it's there's really no way, to, there's only one best play, that sort of thing. They're, they're trying to weigh those things with what games, for which ones they think are the best. So they're thinking just objectively, this is a great game and not just this game would play great with other Mensa members. No, it's it's interesting, the, the mix of people that are there. There sure. are uh, a lot of folks that are... You know, you're hardcore gamers, you know, like <laughs> yes. the folks who are listening to this podcast. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there are also people who are, they're into games, but they're not really into games. But they, they like playing a good game. And then there are also, there are a lot of families that are just there to, you know, they, they're just interested in playing a game on a Saturday, you know, when it's raining. So, and all those folks are there. And uh, they all decide, they all have their own um Criteria, you know, what criteria for what makes a great game? Sure. You know, fun, fun is fun to you is different th- than fun to me and fun to that other person over there. So it, everyone's making their own judgment on what's what's a fun game and what's what's interesting, and uh, that's the that's really the the fun thing about mind games is that yeah, you know, often it's there are games that are you know complicated. Get winners this past year was Castles of Mad Cake Longwick. You know, there's a lot going on with that game. But there are other games that are, uh, you know, very light and uh, very quick to play. Like uh, like last year, Quick was one of the winners. It's yes. A quick little dice game that you could probably knock out in 10 minutes. It had something that appealed to the voters, and, and so it won. Well, you know, so a game that is complica- complicated or complex is, you know, can be fun to play. Sure. But people play games so that they can interact with other folks. There are plenty of games that you can play by yourself, but a lot of times people just want a game to, to get together on a, on a weekend. You know, you've got the family together and you, know, you dress, you know, settlers or, you know, something that you can just get together and have a good time over. So Sounds great. So how about for you? This past year you had a number of different winners. Castles of Man King Ludwig, which you also mentioned about, Dragonwood, Lanterns, Letter Tycoon, and Trekking the National Parks. This is a pretty big diversity of games, not just kind of like centered on one particular area. Right. That, you know, that's, that's what I was talking about. It's, a, it's an interesting mix of games. You know, you've got between the complicated and the, and the very light. And it just sort of reflects the diversity of the people that are, that are in Mensa and, are, and that are at Mind Games. Sure. Were there any games out of this recent select that really kind of spoke to you that you really enjoyed playing? 
Well, I really like playing Castles of the Mad King Ludwig. I, I played that. Uh, I had never played it before. I played it once uh, with a group of people, and it was great. And then there was uh, another game that uh, another we played it. We started playing at like 11:30 at night, and I think it was about 2:30, even three by the time we finished. But wow, it was it was pretty intense. Uh, like that one, and uh, the trek in the national parks game was was really enjoyable. Sure, um, you know it's geography related, and, uh, and you know national parks are nifty, and it, it just had something that really uh, that I really enjoyed. I actually met Ted Alspeck recently at Gen Con, and he was just really proud of that game. And then, which is kind of an establishment game, Bezier Games trekking the national parks was actually a Kickstarter game that was funded just by the public. And here it is at Mensa, and here it is receiving a select award. That's that's quite an accomplishment for that game, too. You know, it's funny you say that. There's a, there have been, in recent years, uh, as you might imagine, there have been a lot of games that are Kickstarter or self-published been at Mind Games because Mind Games is one of the few awards that you can't purchase to win. You have to actually earn it on the board table. And so it's it's got a little bit of credibility over maybe some other award for that reason. So, you know, your Kickstarter games, your self-published games that win that award, they they have an automatic in with a lot of companies, and uh, they pay attention to that sort of thing. Uh, IOTA, a few years ago, IOTA was, uh, I believe, a self-published game, and... Uh, my understanding is he was very surprised that he was one, but very happy that he <laughs> and uh, published several other games in the, since then. So it really kind of helped. You know, he did he did the work himself. I don't want to take any credit. No, sure. But it it uh, it sort of helped him get the foot into in the door. You know. Sure. Have you had any other reactions from publishers or designers? Particularly, I mean, there's okay. a, mostly surprised that they didn't win. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, you know. A lot of times, I'll, I share that surprise. You know, there's several games that I've played over the years. It's like, well, this is a solid winner. I don't see how this this is. I would love this game. I don't see how this is not going to win. And then, and then it does. You know, because just the way things work. So it's that's not uncommon. Do you have a favorite game? Do you have a favorite game genre? Certain games that you like to play? Well, it's funny. My uh, favorite games sort of uh, evolve as you have kids and, uh, and sure. grow up. <laughs> You know, you tried to uh, rate games. To, you know, what is the chance of that actually hitting the table? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like the cooperative games a okay. lot. Um, Forbidden Desert, uh, Forbidden Island, sure. um, Flashpoint Fire Rescue. A few years yes. ago, that was that was a really good, a great one that I uh, I actually went in, went out and purchased after the fact. Wow, you know, it's it's a it's a fun, compelling game that you just. I was after I played it. I was just exhausted because I was so into. <laughs> oh my God! This house is going to collapse on us. It was. I thought it was just a fascinating game. So, what's that event like when you're when you're getting everyone to game? Is there is it a big buzz? A lot of excitement? Is people grabbing at different games? It's it's a big it's a lot of buzz. It's you know it's a it's a room of two hundred and fifty to three hundred people, and everybody is there. Some people have traveled hundreds of miles just to play games and that's all they're there for you know so you were just at gen con and it, it's that same sort of thing you know everyone's just excited to get their hands on those games and um you know you've got your friends that you that you play with but then there's other always somebody else who needs to play that game because it's on their list too 
So it's very uh, organic where people are like, you know, hey, I need, I need to play that game too. Can I join you? Sure, come on in. And it's very open and accepting, and um, it's just exciting because, you know, groups form, and, you know, hey, that was kind of fun, and, you know, do you have anything else that we have in common? And, you know, you, you get those games going, and, oh, okay, I'm going to go eat. And so <laughs> yeah, they, nice. the groups form and break up and reform, and it's, it's, it's really nifty in that way. This out. One of the best parts is after we announce the winners, we give all the games away, all the games that we've been playing the whole weekend. We have a list of all the members from number one to number 200. And, okay, number one on the list, which game do you want? And then you take that game home. Wow. All the games get given away. That's amazing. So uh, so you could fly to Chicago, and then you get a free game out of it. There you go. I think that balances out the plane flight. So. It totally does. <laughs> totally does. Not to mention the, the, the incredible fun you get to play with everybody at the table. So Exactly. You might even get two, because if you're down on the list, lower on the list, then we'll, we'll start at the bottom and go back up. Ah, okay. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> well, that's great, Greg. Thank you so much for speaking with us. We really appreciate your time today. And if you are interested in checking out the recent award winners or if you want to travel to the convention at the Western Chicago on April 15th to 17th, check out www.mindgames.us.mensa.org. Or you can check in our show notes. We'll have information there, how to follow up. And hopefully you'll get to be part of this great competition and help select the new games for 2016. All right. Thanks very much. I really, really appreciate uh, you having me on. Thank you so much, Greg. Really appreciate it. And now, our Acquisition Disorders. Acquisition Disorders? That's crazy. Only needs the base game. Nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game and the expansion and the promos and, of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So the base game, the expansion, the promos, and the upgraded All right, components. so See, this week we're looking at a number of different games and game accessories as part of our Acquisition Disorder because, you know, you got to have it all because you want it all and it's awesome. So, Daniel, why don't you start us off this week? Well, so for me, my acquisition disorder, it's not actually the, the newest game out there, though it is pretty new, it's 2013, uh, is Battletech Alpha Strike. Now, I used to play the old Battletech RPG, and I used to play all the Mech Warrior video games, and I'm a pretty big fan of tabletop miniature combat, but it gets really complicated, mm-hmm. and so it's very difficult to get people to play with you who don't only play that game, right? And it's, it's one of those games hard to be sort of put your toes in and that's what i like to do right i like to sort of put my feet in the pool but not get pulled in under uh and battletech alpha strike looks like and might be simple enough to do that with uh mm-hmm. what it is is an attempt to capture the strategic play of the full version of battletech the original game the classic game uh in a much uh more efficient package and as a result, there's a lot less, you know, rule referencing. There's a lot fewer rules to learn. The book is smaller. All the uh, all the uh, miniatures come with play cards that helps you see exactly what they're capable of, and essentially cuts the complexity of the classic BattleTech about in half. Okay. Now, now you lose some of the details that hardcore BattleTech fans would probably love, right? When they get to pick the exact location of every heat sink on their mech, on every mm-hmm. single mech. Sure. Uh, but for those of us who would like to have something we could play with people who aren't quite so devoted okay. uh, and who would like something that runs a little bit faster, I think Battletech Alpha Strike is going to be a very promising midpoint. So that's going to be my acquisition disorder. 
Uh, I, I'm also just a sucker for giant robots shooting at each other. I mean, <laughs> I listen. Yeah, right. in, in answer to the question posed by the classic theme song of Mega's XLR, who loves giant robots? I do. I love giant robots, <laughs> Mega's XLR. I love them very much. So, yeah, that's me. How about you, Chris? Well, I'm looking at something a little different this week. I had as an acquisition disorder quite some time ago the Seven Wonders Broken Token insert and coins. Now, I'm going to hold on to our at the table to talk about that. But my acquisition disorder is somewhat related to that because clearly this is a Seven Wonders episode for me. Seven Wonders Duel. Now, this is the two-player game that's going to be released at Essen. Now, there was supposedly a copy floating around at Gen Con, but, but despite my best efforts, I was not able to track it down. But that being said, Anton Bowser and Bruno Cathala were at Gen Con showing this off to some people. Not This Seven Wonders Duel is similar, but has some unique differences. So think of it like Tug of War. So it's a two-player game, and you really are looking for three different things. First off, military. Now, you remember in Seven Wonders where if you have the most military, you score victory points and you cost other players on your left and right to lose victory points. Well, in Duel, you actually have this tug of war where if you score more military for that round, you move this token over towards the opponent's side. And the further it goes down to their side the more money they lose. And if it goes all the way to the end, no matter where you are in the game, the game is over and your opponent loses. So you do have to keep track of the military because if it becomes too strong on one side, the game's over. Now, the same can be said with science. Now, science in this game has a more involved effect because you're collecting a number of different scientific revelations or inventions here in this set and if you collect them all it's also an instant victory so you have to keep an eye on that as well now don't worry because there's also collecting all seven wonders and there's also the standard building resources in order to pay for other culture cards and other cards throughout the game so it's a shrink down two-player tug-of-war version of Seven Wonders, but it seems like they've kind of got the bugs out from at least the two-player Seven Wonders that they had originally. This seems to be a really tight and focused and elegant version of Seven Wonders. So this is absolutely positively on uh, my acquisition disorder. I am going to pick this up sight unseen. All right, so this is a game that uh, I, I might have mentioned a while ago, but then it went completely off the radar for like a year and then just randomly stumbled across it at Gen Con uh, at the Cryptozoic booth. And that's Portal, the uncooperative cake acquisition game. That's an awesome title. I know, I love the title. The title's awesome. <laughs> so this is the Portal board game uh, based on the Portal video games from Valve. And it's it's a game that the guys at Valve actually developed a little bit, and then they brought it to Cryptozoic, and they helped them develop it further. And apparently it's done, and it's coming out next month. And they had copies, finished copies, on demo at Gen Con, and I was not unfortunately able to sit and actually play through this game, so I don't know as much as I would like to about it, but I did watch it, I've seen the components, I've talked a little bit about how it plays, and it does not really play like 
the video game, and that's something that you know the guys at Valve specifically they didn't want a board game version of the video game. But it has cake, it has Gladys, <laughs> and has multiple test subjects that you will be killing either of your own or other people's. And honestly, what else do you need in a portal board game? It just looks really cool. And it's on the table. It has this great footprint there with like all these different hexes building out and you're kind of moving the rooms around constantly. And the portals play a role, but they're not the only part of the game. So there's a lot going on there. Um, But there's cake. And that's kind of the main part of the game is, you know, who has cake at the end when nobody else does. So it's, Looks interesting. I don't know, honestly, enough about it to say whether it, it'll be worth the purchase or not, but I certainly will track it down to play it. And the box is awesome because it looks all super old and faded. Like, it just got found at the bottom of, a, you know, an old box of you know, photographs. And it's all sun-faded, and obviously it's brand new. But it, it, actually, that's why I thought it was a prototype when we first saw it. And I'm like, no, it's a finished production copy. I'm like, ah, oh, I get it. That's great. So, looking <laughs> forward to that one. So, it's a prototype, but not? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to look like a prototype. Prototype, it's not a yeah. Prototype, but then maybe you think it is, and I don't know how that'll play on the store shelves. People will probably think it's been sitting there for years. But it's true. This is one that you could probably easily see in GameStop. You know, as Drew was talking about earlier, because this is right up that alley. And I think it was the the strangest reaction I ever had about seeing a component in a board game. We walked by the booth. We looked over someone's shoulder. We saw the game. And I was like, oh, my God, there's cake. And I just like, there's cake. There's actually cake in the game. <laughs> and who knew there'd be cake? <laughs> I thought it was a lie, but therefore it was. She kept saying there would be cake. And then there was. <laughs> but the cake is adorable, right? Yeah, it's like these tiny little cake pieces on this tray. They're so God, tiny. It's awesome. It's awesome. Indeed. All right. So that's our acquisition disorders this week. All right, guys, you ready for some gaming? I brought my favorite games. Got a couple new ones. Hello? Is anybody here? Hello? Hey, guys. This week I had the awesome opportunity to play a uh, brand new solo game. And that's not something I get to say very often because a lot of solo games are either older or revisions of other games or they're a solo mode in a big box game somehow um and that's probably a good chunk of the games i play so a brand new unique and most importantly awesome solo game is pretty rare uh this one though is uh it's been on the radar for a little while because it was kickstarted and it's actually one that i wish i had kickstarted and i just didn't for whatever reason um i don't think i was quite into the solo gaming yet when it was on kickstarter but after the fact, I was like, oh, why didn't I kickstart it? Fortunately, the first available opportunity to buy it was at Gen Con, where I happened to be, so I picked up a copy. Um, more importantly, I was able to sit down with the game's designer, and he showed me kind of, you know, different ways the game plays, and some of the other options, and some of the other content that comes with it. Um, so there was a lot of cool stuff here. I got to kind of check it out from a few different angles. Uh, that game is Hostage Negotiator. Hostage Negotiator is exactly what it sounds. You are a hostage negotiator dealing with um, some kind of terrorist or disgruntled ex-employee or somebody who's really mad about something and is holding hostages. And the game runs through uh, a number of rounds or conversations, as they're called, and you're going to be rolling dice, you're going to be playing cards, you're going to be trying to save these hostages before uh, you lose. And there's a number of ways you can lose the game. 
you can run out of uh, these terror cards that basically mark the different rounds of the game. And each of the terror cards has something on it that could be generally negative, occasionally positive, but almost always bad for you. Um, there's a threat dial that will go up or down depending on how you play your cards. Um, if it goes up, you get to roll fewer dice. And if it goes up too high, if it maxes out, then you start losing hostages. If it goes down, you get to roll more dice, which is awesome. Uh, there is a conversation marker. And as that goes up, as you get more conversation points, you can use those each round to buy new cards. And the, the higher cost the card, the better it is. The interesting thing about this game, though, is that unlike a lot of other deck builders, where you buy cards, you're building up your deck, um, and you're going to kind of combat these bad guys, the cards you play every round go back to the pool. So you don't actually get to build a deck, and yet you are buying new cards each time. And when you use those conversation points, they go away. So there's a lot of interesting mechanics there, because you might have six conversation points one round because you rolled really well, and if you buy the top level super awesome best card in the game it might allow you to do something amazing but if you don't get the roll then you've basically wasted all of that so there's a lot of mitigation there because you're going to be rolling basically for everything and there are ways to mitigate that if you roll successes then you get it if you roll the certain symbol which is little cards then you can spend cards to change the die to what you need it to generally success there is another card you can purchase that allows you to re-roll. Very important. Um, there are other things that break the game, too. There are uh, demands, which if you concede the demand, if you say, okay, fine, we will give you what you want, you get a bonus, and the bonus could be anything, really. It could be more conversation points, it could be reduced threat, it could be saved hostages, but it also generally makes the game harder when you do that. All of this put together creates this super thematic game and for a solo game that is by itself kind of rare super thematic where you feel like a hostage negotiator kind of working with this person trying to save these hostages and getting really upset <laughs> when you don't roll the dice properly and you lose a hostage and the way the game works is that if you lose more than half of the hostage from the initial pool then you lose so it's you can lose some hostages but you know like any game like this where people are dying you know you know, figuratively, you don't want to lose any. So it's frustrating when you lose any. And then when you lose enough to lose the game, it's that much more frustrating. Um, I actually won the first game I played. And I was I played this with AJ, the designer. And he told me that the, the roles that I put out there and the way, I, the way the game went was very fortuitous, not really the way the game generally goes. And I found that to be the case. That in subsequent plays of the game, I have lost every single time. Um, I'm a little too aggressive. Maybe I got a little emboldened by that first win. Um, but that's good because you want the game to be hard. And yet at the same time, I know I can win because I did the first time through. Probably with the designers <laughs> walking me through it and showing me how to do it. Um, the game is relatively quick. Uh, when I lose, it takes about 15 minutes. When I get close enough to win, maybe 20 to 30 it is incredibly thematic. Every playthrough is very different. There are different assailants, different people you could go against. The base game comes with three, and then there are additional packs coming out in the future, um, and they're not available yet, but they will be in the future, um, where you can get more um, options, so you can get different people you have to go up against. And those packs actually have different mechanics in them, so there's different things like decision cards, um, and a lot of different things that come into play that are not in the base game. So 
a lot of ideas floating out there about how to enhance and grow this game and get more out of it. And that excites me because I love solo games and a lot of them, once you play through them a lot, which you tend to because they're short, a lot of them, when you play through them that many times, they start to feel samey. You know, I mentioned a few weeks ago that Friday is the perfect game to get as a first solo game. And I stand by that, either that or Onirim. They're both great, but they both suffer from the sameness where if you play it enough times, it feels very, very familiar. And that can be cool because you can knock it out really fast and you can do it while you're watching TV or something. But at the same time, if you want a real challenge, if you want something unique and different and thematic that makes you feel like you're engrossed in a game, um, you want something bigger. And Lord of the Rings LCG is awesome, but it's almost too big sometimes. It takes up so much space. It takes a lot of setup. It's long. It's very epic, which is great, but sometimes you don't want that epic. Hostage Negotiator fits in that middle area where not many solo games fit. That's Hostage Negotiator. I'm very excited to see what else comes out for this. It's a whole new range and realm of solo gaming, and it's awesome. So this is probably my favorite solo game so far this year. Um, I'm really glad I stumbled across it at Gen Con and that I was able to get a copy because I did not get the Kickstarter. And from what I've heard, it is currently not available generally, um, although another print run should be coming pretty soon in the next couple months. Um, If you are a solo gamer, if you are interested in something a little meatier than those lighter games, but not so intense as Lord of the Rings or those other big ones, um, check this out. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, It's a good one. All right, so that's everything for this week. Tune back in uh, next week, and I'm going to be talking about the brand new expansion for Imperial Settlers on the solo segment and what that adds to the solo game and how different that new uh, faction plays in solo mode. All right, that's it for solo gaming. And now, at the table with BGA. All right, so let's talk about what games are getting out to our table and what we're able to play. Anthony, why don't you start us off? Awesome. Yeah, so this is a game that I I picked up at Gen Con, stood in the line, then stood in the line again, then stood in another line. I stood in three lines for this game, so you know I wanted to... be good. Yeah, right? (laughs) I had to get the ticket, and then I had to pay for it. It was a whole long thing. So it's the new version, the second edition of the Game of Thrones living card game. It comes in a much smaller box, and the... The actual changes here, like when you first pull it out and you read the rules, everything's very familiar. Um, and I'm not a tournament player, I'll say that up front, so there's probably a ton of changes in this game that I don't, I haven't really stumbled across yet. But just right out of the gate, you know, the main changes that I saw were, A, out of the box you're getting eight different factions, which is twice as many as you got out of the box with the old version of the game. When you build the decks, you can combine different factions together, and like the base game... Uh, It gives you recommended faction combinations, and you really just mash two of them together. In the future, when you're building the decks, there's different rules you have to follow based on loyalties between the houses. Um, But it's pretty cool. And the fact that there's a Night's Watch faction, so you can build a Night's Watch deck, is great. Because in the old game, those were all neutral cards. And actually, in this one, they've made certain cards neutral that make a lot more sense. Like Littlefinger is a neutral card. Whereas before, he was part of the Lannisters, which didn't really make much sense. So there's some nice touches there. Thematically, it makes more sense. The artwork is all different, and I know some people didn't like the old artwork as much. Some people did like it, but the new art- artwork is great. So we can all agree on that. The cards look great. Another thing that they changed is the melee mode. So if you're going to play with more than two players, 
Because, you know, the game is designed as a one-on-one game, but the old version of the game could play up to four with this board and all these pieces, and it was... It felt a little wonky, and it made the game really long, but it worked. The new version, they got rid of the board. There's no pieces, which is a little sad because I painted mine from the old one. But in the new one, there are no pieces. They are all cards. But the reason it works, and it's not some cheap replacement, is that the cards, uh, you're going to remove some of those cards based on how many people are playing, and then you're going to draft them, and then people are going to go blindly. So people aren't. you're not necessarily going to know which card everybody has from those titles, um, kind of like citadels. So the first person's going to have the least information, whereas the last person will have, you know, they'll know what cards are left. Um, so that's very interesting. The other interesting thing is that this will play up to six people instead of four if you have a second uh, base set of the game. So all of these major changes already off the bat, I found very interesting. The core game is very similar. Like you're still playing for the same things you're still trying to get the 15 power you're still having military and intrigue battles and all that but there are a lot of different tweaks throughout that streamline the game in a lot of ways and i think the deck building is a lot more fun which is great because before it was the rules were so strict that really there was always a best card that you could put in there and it was based on like the 65 different decks that were available all the different chapter packs so it was frustrating and you didn't want to pay for all those different decks just to get the one card you needed for your house now there's a lot more options which is awesome the the game feels a lot more compact and thematic and it all kind of fits together nicely and you get more houses which is great because there's this big huge world to draw from so you're not just drawing from the four major houses in that first game um and it's a a little more caught up in terms of like story-wise and things although again more or less spoiler-free, at least in the current iteration. So I'm very pleased with it. I'm having, you know, I have not gotten to play a lot of it yet just because there was so much goodness at Gen Con to be had. But what little Chris and I played and what little we looked at as we played through it a couple nights there, it's great. And I'm looking forward to getting it out more. And I'm looking forward to those first couple of chapter packs so we can see what kind of new cards are going to come down the line. So, Anthony, is Game of Thrones a second edition? Is that a buy? Is it a play or a dodge? It's definitely a play, uh, regardless of whether you've played the first one or not. I think if you play the first one casually, it might be hard to make the, the case to buy an entire another set uh, when you already have the first set. But if you don't have the first set, and you like Game of Thrones, and you like these types of card games, definitely a buy. If you play competitively, of course it's a buy, because you can't use the old cards anymore. And if you just like complex card games that can scale from two up to multiple people... Um, yeah, it's definitely. I think it's a solid buy, and it, for the price point and the number of decks you get out of the box, you're getting a lot of game here. Yeah, I know we played this only a short version, but I really did enjoy it, and I really did love Game of Thrones, the living card game, so I'm glad to see that this is reprinted again. Now, one of the strange things that we saw at Gen Con was one of the auctions, somebody was auctioning up their entire Game of Thrones living card set, plus, I I guess, all the promos and the prizes they must have won, and nobody even bid on it, which was just like blew your mind because here was a beautiful, pristine collection with everything you could possibly want, and it was just done because the second edition had come out. Yeah, it's tough, though, because the only reason you would need every card is if you were a tournament player. Sure. And he wanted 200 bucks for it as a starting bid, so... If you're just a casual gamer, you're like, I don't need all those cards. I just need a handful to play for fun. Yeah. Um, like, 
That's a tough one. That's the that I guess that's the major issue with games like this. Like you're not going to invest that heavily in it unless you plan on actually going out and playing with people, uh, like competitively. So like Doomtown Reloaded, I'm sure is awesome out of the box. You don't need to buy every expansion unless you do want to go do those events. Sure. Uh, same thing for Game of Thrones. So that was a tough one. I feel bad for that guy. I mean, sure. I'm sure like eBay could probably hook him up though. Yeah, I mean, for me, what I was really excited about this set is all the additional houses that came in this game. So it wasn't just the, I guess it was, I guess it was five or six originally. You had the Starks, you had the Lannisters, you had the Greyjoys. I guess it was the Martells and the Targaryens, right? But this one has more than that, right? Yeah, and with the original one too, you didn't get the Martells or the Greyjoys out of the box you got them through the expansions the only four that came in the original ones were the starks the lannisters the baratheons and the um the targaryens so it was actually very limited and those decks that came out of the box like you got a deck and you played that deck um at least now in the base set you can build your own deck especially for playing with two people because you have enough cards to build all sorts of different kinds of decks because the loyalty rules make it so you can pull cards from anywhere. It's much more flexible. And already, just looking at it, having not played too many games, it's much more interesting to look at that aspect of the game. Whereas before, I had no interest in deck building. We almost always played with the stock decks because we didn't have enough cards to build out. All right, Daniel, how about you? Well, Anthony, you and I might need to meet up in the town square at high noon and draw down because I am also going to be talking about what would be, I guess, a living card game if it weren't for certain legal issues involving that name, but essentially is, uh, called Doomtown Reloaded. Uh, It's a Wild West-themed living card game. I'm going to use that term because they're not going to sue me, right? Uh, (laughs) I don't don't know that. You don't know that. (laughs) Oh, I just miscategorized. I'm a confused consumer because they didn't create a significant enough product difference, which would invalidate their argument in the first place. Uh, Right? (laughs) Um, Anyway, Doomtown Reloaded is set in a sort of quasi, a highly fantastical version of the American Wild West, where the discovery of something called Ghost Rock, which burns with a great intensity but also shrieks while burning as though the souls of the dead may be trapped within it hint hint nudge nudge wink wink whatever has caused bizarre transformations to occur in the world uh so you've got mad scientists riding around on mechanized horses with gatling guns and you've got a circus full of dark wizards on the corner of town that everybody remembers just showed up last week right right or was it the week before? I don't know, but they haven't been here long. And then you've got so you know the Morgan Cattle Company has all these these scientists and all this these horses and large amounts of money and land. You've got the law dogs who are just trying to bring order to the orderless waste, and you've got the Sloan Gang who is a bunch of criminals trying to you know be criminals and doing pretty well at it. Uh, so you've got lots of factions to pick from, and they're about to release two more. One which is the so what's it called? The 108, I believe, which is a sort of uh, Chinese immigrant-themed kung fu-based group, which is, you know, maybe a little borderline in some ways, but also looks pretty cool. Uh, and then you also have the Eaglehorn Mystics, I think, Eaglehorn Mystics, which is the their play on sort of Native American tropes uh, in that genre. Uh, Doomtown is a fantastic game as a 
living card game, I think, largely because when you build your decks, there's a lot to think about. So every card has a like a poker card, has a suit and number in the top left corner, as well as its effects, its powers, influence, cost, upkeep, all of that normal stuff. So you have to think about all the normal stuff, and you have to think about faction loyalties, which is pretty normal, pretty par for the course. But you also, to resolve fights and determine play order, have to play poker hands from your deck, meaning that you need to consider the range of values that you're putting in your deck and the way you're structuring your draw so that you can consistently get the kinds of poker hands you need, which adds not only a wonderful touch of theme because the idea of you know the cowboys dueling over poker, right, that sort of... It meshes very well there, but it makes deck structuring an enormously complex and satisfying task. I will say that this has one of the most brutal learning curves of any game I've tried to learn in recent memory. I played through, they had the, their little special tutorial mode, right? And I was like, oh, this is great. They've got a little tutorial battle we're going to play through, and we're going to see how everything works. It didn't clear up much at all partially because they didn't always explain why things happened this way and why that went there and that went there, right? Uh, so even with that, it didn't help. And I think I've played this game five or six times through right now with numerous different groups on the table, and there are still rules I'm still trying to get the hang of, but I think it's worth it. I also think it could be fixed, right? I, don't, I think if a second edition were to come out where somebody took the time to be more cautious and more uh, conservative with their design elements, think more carefully about whether or not they really need to add a special rule for this particular thing, uh, I think they could smooth it up a lot. But even given that I think that there are some design flaws that make it tougher than it needs to be, and given that it is a very tough game to learn, it is still definitely worth it i am already looking forward to the upcoming expansions immensely and i'm going to start looking for organized play events around here one of the things that's the coolest about their organized play events is that the winner of those events get little 10 deputy badges uh, if it's at a local store if you're playing at a regional one they're sheriff's badges and if you're playing at gen con essentially the national tournament they're u.s marshal badges uh, and apparently there's already be gotten to be like sort of secondary market where people will come in when there's not an organized event and put down their badges to play. So they'll, they'll wager their previous badges uh, as sort of a, as a bet, uh, which just adds to the whole idea, right? It, it's a great environment for that game, for that sort of uh, aesthetic to live in. Uh, so that's what I've been playing and what I'm going to keep playing. And, what may become one of the first games in a long time I'm thinking of seriously about taking to a tournament or organized play level. So that's uh, Doomtown Reloaded. So, Daniel, would that be a buy, a play, a dodge, a burn? What do you uh, think? That's definitely, uh, well, for me, it's absolutely a buy. Okay. But I would warn, if you are not willing to suffer the complexities and willing just to feel like a moron the, couple, the first couple times you play, and willing to read, you know, extra guidelines and Google f to find errata and new rules and that sort of thing, uh, it might not be for you. But if you're willing to struggle with a complicated rule set so that you can have a satisfying, engaging, and, and enormously ambitious uh, game uh, with wonderful organized play 
possibilities, I would buy it. And that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Man, that sounds really cool. And I uh, I have way too many LCGs right now to pick up another one. But when you're back in town, I will gladly play it with you. <laughs> yeah, come on over. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll draw down. <laughs> All right. So for my at the table this week, I am going with a game accessory. Now, back on episode 70, I talked about... Broken Tokens, Seven Wonders Insert. Now, in particular, I talked about it because I had recently picked up Seven Wonders Babel and punched everything out, put everything back in the box, and the box really didn't hold everything right and stuff was kind of pouring out the seams, could not get this to the table at all because every time I opened the box, it was a mess. So despite the fact that I've never been that guy that wanted to have, you know, literally all the chrome and everything else that went with the game, this seemed like a necessary purchase. Now, I was able to pick this up at the Broken Token booth at Gen Con, and my thanks to Tiffany and the whole crew out there. They took care of me. They were really great people, and I would have bought a ton more, but everything sold out as the con went on. But I was able to pick up Seven Wonders. And this past Sunday, I was able to put together the insert, which is made up of this, I guess you would say, a very light balsa wood. And I'm sure maybe I'm not specifically getting that right, what type of wood it is. The wood itself is nice. It has a nice strength to it, and yet it's soft enough that if you needed to file something down, a simple X-Acto knife could do it. So there was some times where I just kind of had to whittle away a, a piece here and there, and it was pretty simple, and the, the wood's very soft, but yet at the same time strong enough to hold together an insert. It took a little while because the instructions that come along with it were helpful, but it didn't show you the exact pictures on the inside, so I went to the website and took a look at that. But it was easy to assemble. It recommends using some tape and glue, I tried some super glue that said that it would work for wood. I don't recommend it. The super glue kind of got sucked right into the wood and really didn't do a great job. But then again, I really didn't find that the joints were very loose. I felt like once I put everything together, it was pretty sturdy. I put it in the box and I felt like I didn't need to worry about it. Now, they recommend taping the edges for the little boxes that you pull out. And maybe at a later point, I'll need to do that. But right now, everything seems to fit together quite nicely, which includes the base game, cities, leaders, a couple of the promos, and especially a couple of the promo boards, and Babel. Now, Babel fits in the top left, and those kind of pie-shaped pieces kind of fit in there really nice and snug. It's got places for the cards up top. I haven't sleeved the cards yet, but I will be doing so, because when it comes to a drafting game you really need to get those card sleeve or otherwise they're going to get banged up a lot in addition to all of that kind of fun i was able to pick up their seven wonder coin set now this is a little bit on the pricey side but you're actually getting high quality coins now the coins are almost identical to the seven wonder coins but i guess they're a little bit legally distinct so You'll see, let's say, for example, the owl on one side, but instead of the leaves on there, you'll see little stars. So it's enough that if you're a hardcore Seven Wonders fan, you're going to look at it and go, wait a minute, something's wrong here. But 
Anybody else who's playing the game won't notice the difference whatsoever. The coins are a sturdy quality, but they're also very light, which was nice here. Now, it doesn't give you the exact amount of coins that you find in, I guess, all of the kind of base games and expansions put together. You're probably getting mm, maybe a little bit more than half of that. Now, Broken Token people have said to me that they found that most gamers don't use all the tokens anyway, so they didn't feel like they needed to add on the additional cost of paying for more coins when generally you don't use all the money. Now, I haven't had the chance to get this game to the table since I put together the insert and added the coins, but I'm hoping that that's true because, you know, once you have these beautiful metal coins in your hand and you start to run out and you have to go to the cardboard ones, it's, it's kind of a bummer. Now, you can pick up two sets, but it's going to cost you a little bit more, obviously, to kind of put that together. But I'm going to say for the Seven Wonders insert, which does a really super job of kind of putting everything together and the coins, it's a buy. Now, this is only going to be a buy if you are a solid Seven Wonders fan, if you love the game, because it's going to add some additional costs. But having all of the expansions and Especially that Babel expansion in one box so you can travel and take it where you go. Uh, it's kind of priceless for me because I love the game. I want to take it with me. And before I had the insert, I couldn't do so. And in addition to that, they also have these big rubber bands that are safe for board game covers. And I threw one of those on, on top of everything else just in case, you know, things got a little bit shaky. So... The coins, the insert, and the rubber band are all buys for me this week. And now, BGA's feature review. We're going to talk about the top 10 games that bumped out their predecessors. Now, you may know these games as the tried-and-true classics that, unfortunately, have sat on your shelf and gathered dust. Because maybe there's one or two things about their mechanics... Or just maybe something about the theme that's just not working with your group. And then turns out, here comes these 10 brand new games that on some level stay true to the original, but does things so much better. So BJ put together the top 10 list. If you got these games, maybe you want to try out all these brand new games. Alright, so number 10, Anthony, why don't you take it away? All right, so this is one we just played at Gen Con, and Chris had backed it previously on Kickstarter. I immediately went and bought a copy at Gen Con, so that'll tell you what I think of it. Um, and that's Motainai. And uh, this one is actually kind of the natural progression of Glory to Rome, which you might know as a very, very hard-to-find game that a lot of people like a lot. Um, the The core mechanic of the game is pretty simple. You just have a single, you know, everything kind of goes off the same tableau and all these cards will do multiple things depending on where you place them. Both games do the same thing, but Matainai is a little bit quicker, it's a little bit sleeker, and you can actually find it and buy it. So that <laughs> makes it a must-buy right there, because if you want Glory to Rome, it's going to cost you a ton of money. Absolutely. So Daniel, what do you have for our number nine? My number nine is Dark Gothic replacing <laughs> DC Deck Builder and Marvel Legendary. Now, this is a big one, because these are two games that I've had on my shelf for a long time and love. Uh, and I'll admit it's imperfect in that you lose that superhero theme. But I believe that Dark Gothic does what both DC Deck Builder and Marvel Legendary do right at least as well 
as they do, and avoids the mistakes they make. So Marvel Legendary, one of the first games I bought when I started playing, I've pulled it off the shelf maybe once. Because every time I look at it, oh, I don't want to set the whole thing up, take the whole thing apart. It's just this whole, you know, there's so much to do to play Mar- Marvel Legendary, so much bookkeeping. DC Deck Builder, on the other hand, is so simple that it almost runs itself and gets kind of mindless at a time, you know, sometimes. Uh, I think that Dark Gothic hits a good middle point between these. It has that sort of mastermind threat that Marvel Legendary has with the Shadows deck, uh, while it plays simple in the same way that DC Deck Builder does. I also think it's more successful at capturing its theme, this Monster Hunter B-movie, than either DC Deck Builder or Marvel Legendary. So unless you're really hooked on the superhero theme, kick those to the curb and pick up Dark Gothic. Or, you know, keep them, but also pick up Dark Gothic. One note, (laughs) definitely get the Colonial Horror expansion, though. That is one, you know, catch for playing Dark Gothic. It needs that expansion. So that's our number nine. All right, Anthony, what do you have for our number eight? Another one we played at Gen Con, so apparently Gen Con biased us completely against all of our old games. <laughs> uh, and it, this is uh, from Cool Meanie or Not, it's Arcadia Quest. It's the big release for them last year. And for me, this one replaces Crossmaster Arena. And it's just, it's cleaner, it's more direct, it's actually a lot more like games like Cutthroat and Cavern, where you're going after the same goal, but you can kind of stab each other in the back a bunch, so there's multiple ways to win. And you get these awesome little chibi figures, and it's just the scope of it and the ability to kind of make it more complicated or less complicated as you go, plus the ability to have that kind of progression of a campaign makes it a more solid game. And Daniel, what do you have for our number seven? Well, like number nine, number seven is going to be a time where I'm going to bump one of my favorite games uh, of all time. So I'm going to be saying here that Dead of Winter, I think, replaces or bumps Betrayal at the House on the Hill. Now, I've talked about both of these games at length in past episodes. If you really want to hear us go off on them, you can do that there. Uh, but the, for me, the crux of it is I love flexible narratives and I love trader mechanics. Dead of Winter does, I think, both of those things better. Now, I will miss the sort of tightness of Betrayal at the House on the Hill, maybe, in moving to uh, Dead of Winter. And this is one of the reasons why it's sort of lower on the list, because it's not an absolute death blow. Uh, and I love Betrayal, so I'll keep it. But if I were to give somebody my essentials list, Betrayal would no longer be on it because Dead of Winter is. So that's my number seven. All right, Anthony, what about our number six? All right, so this one's kind of a natural progression. So some of these are, hey, I have a game, and let's make this game better with new stuff. And that's that's what happened with Dice Masters. Um, So taking the mechanics, the basic mechanics of Quarriers, which was a good game and an enjoyable game, but not always my favorite game, and turning it into this head-to-head collectible dice and card game that whether you agree with how it was launched and implemented and how the uh, open play has gone, uh, regardless of all that, the game is very good. The mechanics are awesome. It's a very solid game, and it's the ability to expand and customize and grow and the options for multiple play styles. And yes, it's one-on-one, but you can also play two-on-two. There's a lot you can do with this game. And it continues to grow with new themes in ways that Quarriors really didn't succeed at. And it tried with different themes and that just they fell flat. So Marvel Dice Masters or any of the other Dice Masters has definitely replaced, for me, Quarriors. All right, Daniel, our number five is? So our number five is Smash Up bumping munchkin i think we've actually talked about this in the past as a sort of natural progression 
But really, it is Smash Up is my go-to charismatic, cutesy card game for new players, uh, which is a place that Munchkin has held in the past. Smash Up has, I think, so much more entertainment value. The ability to you know smash things up results in really kind of absurd scenarios sometimes, which are fun and of themselves. Uh, and I don't know that I'm going to get a lot of pushback on this one, so I think I'm just going to let this one sit out there. Smash Up. I think should knock Munchkin off the shelf. Okay. Anthony, how about our number four? All right. So this is, uh, I'm a huge fan of civilization games. I actually own maybe four different types of civilization games and they all do something very different. So I, I feel like I can have all these different games on my shelf. Um, but one game that definitely knocked another one down a few pegs for me was nations. And that one really knocked off through the ages. And you've probably heard this a few times, but for me, the reason why is, it's a little bit quicker to play. Players are more engaged for more of the times. So you're not sitting there waiting for the game to do its thing. The solo mode is quicker and more engaging to get going. And the sheer depth of the decks that come with this game make it so that every single time is so very different. So Nations, for me, has definitely knocked off through the ages as the big, epic, card-based civilization game in my collection. Okay. Daniel, how about our number three? Well, these keep getting easier as we go up the list, Chris. So my number three is going to be Defenders of the Realm Bumping Pandemic. Uh, I mean, you've got a choice between two network-based cooperative games where you're fighting off some force. Now, that force could be a bunch of abstract little cubes. Or it could be demons, monsters, orcs, and dragons, right? Deep, un undead orcs and dragons, right? Uh, and an enormously charismatic package with a huge variety of player pack, uh, powers. Defenders of the Realm just does what Pandemic does, but it does so much more of it in a much friendlier, more attractive package that there's just no reason not to prefer Defenders of the Realm. It's the better game. All right. All right, Anthony, what do you have for our number two? So Battle or Second Edition came out almost two years ago now, and it almost immediately knocked off any other Battle or slash Command and Colors slash Battle Cry slash Memoir 44, all those other games in terms of gameplay. Now, there's the other issue of theme, and if you prefer the theme that Memoir 44 offers and the huge plethora of expansions then obviously that is a game that you would want to keep. But if we're talking about raw mechanics and the ability to sit down and very quickly build an army and play against somebody in 40 minutes, a miniature combat game, and have it feel rich and full of depth and options and gameplay, then Battle or Second Edition does it better than any of the other games that utilize a similar mechanic or system. It is definitely the best of that bunch. All right, Daniel. So for our number one game that bumped out their predecessor take it away so this is the only one on the list that i actually just won't listen to an argument against because it seems so obvious <laughs> to me uh, i think caverna totally demolishes the need for agricola to even exist right what agricola was was the place where we learned how to make caverna as a gaming community caverna is agricola perfected there's no place for Agricola on shelves anymore, except as a historical curiosity. I mean, it's a fine game. It did a great deal of good for us. A lot of innovation went in there. 
But all that innovation was for one purpose, and that is to give birth to the masterpiece that is Caverna. Uh, so I, I, I think that one's... I mean, that was almost part of the advertising material, right? Like, Caverna, colon, who needs Agricola anyway? <laughs> uh, so that's our number one, Caverna bumping Agricola. All right, so that's our top 10 games that bumped out their predecessors. If you happen to see somebody coming by with a cart saying, bring out your dead, now you know what to do. And now, our final round. Hey, guys. Thanks for saving my place. Back for the final round. It's, it's also busy. This is August. It's We're in and out on vacation all the time. I thought this would be a great uh, topic. Vacation games that you can travel with. That you can play in a car, you can play on a plane, play on a bus. The game I thought of was a game I picked up actually in Tokyo, Score 4. That two-player abstract game with uh, 16 poles, little poles stuck in a board, arranged 4x4. Four four, and you, it's basically a 3D version of Connect 4. Mm-hmm. But they have a tiny version that sets up really well. And people, they're visually attracted to this little thing that you can manipulate very easily and play, play a great game. I've always brought it out when i travel people like it it the rules are in japanese but i enjoy it score four daniel what do you take when you're traveling well so i haven't taken this anywhere yet because i'm still waiting for it to come in from the kickstarter i back but i'm gonna have to go to fall of magic my my instinct is always to go to sort of role-playing games but most role-playing games either require substantial rule books and familiarity from everyone which is not ideal for say the family on a road trip uh, and they require dice, which aren't easy to roll in a moving vehicle, and that sort of thing, right? And everybody has to be on the same page. It's it's a whole hassle. A Fall of Magic, however, is a very simple system, and it is primarily operated through these sort of open-ended verbal prompts, like your face in the river, right? And then you have to describe how your character ended up in a situation that roughly meets that description somehow. Since it's so narratively driven, there are no stats, there's no rolling none of that bookkeeping to keep track of. Uh, it makes, I think, a great car role-playing game or sort of a great portable mm. role-playing game yeah. because you only really need to have one person with a scroll in front of them. They can just sit in the seat and shuffle through. If you're really crammed for space, you can even do that thing where you rotate both parts of the scroll, right, to just move the screen along. Uh, and as long as you keep track as where, of where you are on the map, which is not terribly difficult, uh, you'll have everything you need. So I say Fall of Magic. Now, this is me being preemptively optimistic about a game I haven't actually had a chance to play yet, but I think it's going to be fantastic. Absolutely. So (laughs) Fall of Magic. Anthony, what do you got? When I was a kid, I always had these little travel chess and checkerboards that are all magnetic, and uh, in theory, they worked great in the back of the car, but inevitably, you know, me and my brother would kick it and then start punching (laughs) each other. Uh, (laughs) It's a great time. It's a great time. so I always like the idea of like a travel version of a bigger game. And unfortunately, in our hobby, there's not a lot of games that do that. Uh, but Catan actually has a nice little portable version, if you don't mind super tiny miniature cards and super tiny miniature houses. <laughs> I actually have a copy of this, and I picked it up. Uh, originally, I picked it up because it was cheaper than the full version of the game. But we played it, and we enjoyed it. The only downside of it is you know, the how you lay out the tiles is kind of preset because of the way the board's set. Oh, sure. But the uh, like the numbers don't move, but the actual different terrain types do. But it's cool, and you could you could play this in a car or on a plane because everything is pegged 
and uh, fits into this into this tray. Now, if you dumped the tray on accident, bad things would happen. But that's true of almost any game, so it's a good one. Well, remember, we live in a perfect world, so we that's never true. dump travel versions. <laughs> I forgot. Perfect world, so it is a perfect situation. Do you need tweezers, like, to move the little pieces? Is it that small? No, no. I mean, I got big meat hook hands, and I was able to play it, no problem. It's the oh, cool. cards that are really bad. They're, like, smaller than Ticket to Ride cards. They're, like, tiny little things. But, wow. Well, it's um, a good thing when you're already familiar with the game that it's it's easier to manipulate. Yeah, I think if this was the first time you played it with this tiny version, you'd be like, this is dumb. <laughs> if you already know the game, it's not so bad. Cool. Thank you. Uh, Chris, how about you? I'm going to go with Richard Garfield's trick-taking game called Ghost, and that's actually Ghost with three O's. Now, what makes this a great travel game is that everything that you need is this little tiny box that has this little magnetic lid to it, so nothing's going to fall out. And yet at the same time, once you open the box, the inside of the box kind of unfolds into this small little mat and then little holding area in which you play the entire game either in the box or on the open cover, which plays as part of a graveyard. Now, in addition to that, the cards are big, they're colorful, the graphic design is simple and elegant. So, you know, as the car or the plane might be, hopefully not, but bouncing around, it's very easy to play. There isn't a lot of components to the game, just these big cards and a couple of tokens, which fits into the box. And it's a Richard Garfield game, so how could you go wrong? And that's my choice, Ghost. Sounds perfect for, like, a plane or a train where you have a table to play on. All right, awesome. Thank you, guys. That is our final round. All right, so that's everything for this week. Please keep in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com. Check out our guild on BoardGameGeek. And please, take a look at our Patreon account. We could really use your support. Don't forget... This week, you have another chance to enter into the Cool Stuff Inc. contest. Check out episode 83 for information on how to log on to Facebook and enter again. So until next time, this is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. And until next time, we'll save you a seat at the table.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.